I don't think any of the bridge players knew, really. Other people think it's kind of weird. I think you must be strange. Well, maybe right, but I don't feel strange. I just feel like everybody else. And most of my life, I've been like everybody else. Now, life couldn't be more normal, could it? Good afternoon, B and Q. How can I help you? Usually Wednesdays and Thursdays I do 12 to 5. Finding out about products for customers and putting them through to the departments if necessary. Answering customer queries. Wait for the phone to ring virtually. Oh, this is the paint section. And this area is all the painting, domestic rollers, paintbrushes, cleaners, and so forth. Um, yes, obviously. <laughs> Spend a lot of time daydreaming, don't we all? In 1967, I answered an ad in the, in the Times personal column saying, I, John Fairfax, will row the Atlantic single-handed and would anyone interested in any way, please contact him. Then he phoned me up and came round and he kept asking me for drinks of water and I had to keep padding across and going off to the kitchen. He later told me he was just doing that because he liked looking at my legs, which is typical John, really. <laughs> and then he went on to row the Atlantic single-handed, the first man to do so and I helped him prepare for that. And he, he got out of the boat and said, next time I'm taking a girl. Well, what do I say? Do I say yes or no? And I thought, well, if I say no, I'm going to regret this. Well, we were the first people to ever row the Pacific. And John was the first man to row any ocean single-handed when he did the Atlantic. And I was the first woman to row any ocean. How do you classify yourself? What do you call yourself? As it says in my passport, I am an adventurer. I do make my living from adventure. That's what I've been doing all my life, and that's about the only thing I can do. Well, how did you first get into the rowing business? I read about two Norwegians. Samuelson and Harbour, when I was 15, in the Reader's Digest. They, they were the first men to row across the Atlantic. This is how I came to row. But what were your reasons for wanting to do it? Could you analyse them? Well, the way I see it is either you feel it in yourself or you don't. Well, he wasn't just an adventurer, he was very artistic and we used to listen to opera a lot and because he was fluent in Italian I used to get this simultaneous translation in the background with this gorgeous accent. I said, oh, this is sublime, I could do this forever. <laughs> and music and poetry and writing and things, I mean, he just... He had a nice voice and voices are important to me and he was good at handling women, and we just got on well. 
he had a very close relationship with his mother to the extent that I felt like the gooseberry. They would walk along arm in arm and I'd be trailing behind and she would sit in the front seat of the car and I would sit in the back. So it was like that. I said after I finished the Atlantic, never again, and I did mean it. Until the next time? Until uh, a month goes by, and two months go by, and you forget what you have been through, and then you start looking around for something else to do. And the Pacific was just there waiting, and uh, I decided to do it before somebody else got into the act. I had to do everything for myself. I had to cook and prepare the, everything, keep the boat ship shape, and I thought, uh, if I had a passenger, a girl, she would be doing all these things for me. So I decided right then and there that if I ever did anything like this again, I would have a girl as passenger. And uh, well, this is why when I decided to do the Pacific, I, I had a girl with me. We left San Francisco and we've been really uncomfortable, our clothes were sodden wet, the sleeping bags were sodden wet, we couldn't dry anything, it was rough and I was seasick for the first eight days and it was thoroughly miserable really and I got salt water sores all over my bottom which were very painful and prickly and we couldn't row very much because it was too rough, it was just miserable. We had two or three false starts because the wind drove us back in and and then we set off again. Suddenly it was warm and calm and nice. So it was all right. The thing that irritated me most was the sea splashing against me. And to have this happening constantly, it really irritates you. I, I, I shot my spear gun at the sea once for doing that and lost my spear. People think it must be really exciting to do something like that, but most of the time it's really boring. You can't see anything, nothing happens. You're just sitting in a boat rowing, and then you have a break, and then you row some more, and you have a break, and then you go to sleep, and basically it's boring. And the bits that aren't boring are just terrifying. Did you nearly come unstuck on this trip? In fact, you were bitten by a shark and you hold your boat, didn't you? Both occasions were mistakes on my part. It's easy to say not to do it with a hindsight, but uh, say when we were wrecked, I approached the Onoto, which is an atoll from the weather side, which I shouldn't have done. I did so simply to avoid uh, ourselves from rowing an extra 12 miles to, to round the island, and we came to grief. It looked as though there were two small islands with a passage in between. And when we got close, it wasn't a passage at all. It was just a flat bit with no trees. And we were trying desperately to row away from it, but the following wind wouldn't let us. John dived into the water 
and left me in the boat and I thought, oh God, that's a fine time to chicken out on me. What he actually did was get hold of the bow of the boat and flew it round so we missed that, but we did still manage to wreck the bottom of the boat. And all the islanders came rushing out and I had a very skimpy bathing costume on and the first thing they did was wrap something round me to cover me up, which was rather sweet. But they were very hospitable and very nice, but they didn't have a boatyard or anywhere repairing our boat. Anyway, eventually we were picked up by a yacht and towed backwards 200 miles. We carried on. And John swam one day and he... Spearing fish for dinner. ...popped his head over the gunwales and said, pass me a knife, and then he was dragging the shark. The white tip stole my fish from the spear and I got mad at him and, uh, and speared him. And as he did it, this shark would suddenly thrash into life and this... And after I did that, he bit me. He had this massive gash in his arm, which is about four inches long and about an inch deep. And at the end of it was a triangle of flesh about half an inch deep, just hanging. So he clambered back on board and he was ashen. And the first thing he said, this is typical John, was, get the camera, darling. <laughs> Can you believe it? And at other times you would sing at the top of your voice. When a gale was at its height, you'd be standing up singing. Yes, I really like it when it's stormy. I can remember when I was a little boy, I used to climb up a tree during uh, bad storms. And I really enjoy that, you know, to feel the wind blowing. I think it was Cyclone Emily. The rain was blinding. You couldn't see more than a couple of yards in front of your face. And the seas were absolutely monumental. It was like being on ups and downs and only it was all moving. And at night you'd hear the waves you just hear them coming, you didn't know where they were going to hit. At night especially, you'd hear these waves hissing down. We didn't know if we were the right way up or the wrong way up. They'd break over the boat. Is that was the unboring part. <laughs> the islands were the unboring part. And the shark bite was an unboring part. Eventually it calmed down and then as it got light one morning I could see the sea was sort of paler. It was a Great Barrier Reef. The whole horizon, whichever direction you looked, was white with breaking surf. There didn't seem any break in it so we didn't know how the hell we were ever going to get out of there. But somehow, one night, as dawn came, we realised we were out of it. We must have drifted through. John navigated us to Hayman Island, which was the prime holiday destination for Australians, and always on it was a superb luxury hotel. And they had a jetty. We rode round it at dawn, and there was a solitary Japanese man standing there with a camera, which is quite ironic, really. And they gave us the most wonderful breakfast and showers. That was it, really. Seems like a book I read now, and I've forgotten half of it. <laughs> Well, there you are. Finally, you made it. 363 days. Many congratulations, and thank you sincerely for coming on the thank show. Thank you very much. Well, there were breaks, but 
because we were good friends, basically. Yeah. I was so angry when he died. How dare you? That was very typical of John. Not very reliable. <laughs>